The scripture this morning is from 2 Samuel 23, verses 8 through 12. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josh, Bashebeth, Atah, Imonite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him, among the three mighty men, were Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. He was with David when they, defi- when they defied the Philistines <laughs> who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. Let's pray. Uh, Father, your word is so precious to us. We desire to be changed by it. Father, may your spirit reveal to us what needs to be done in our own lives. Father, we are grateful that you are going to teach us this morning, and we want to be receptive to whatever you're calling us to do. Father, I pray for Mark as he preaches. Give him wisdom. May your Holy Spirit guide him with every word he says. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I've been waiting for a long time, Albert, for you to have to say a bunch of names. I always threaten it, and finally, it just happened to work out that you got a bunch of names. And we look at these passages like this in the Bible, because we've got this week and next week is left in Second Samuel, and then we're going uh, uh, to go into the New Testament, and we're going to hit Jude uh, throughout the summer. But we look at these passages in the Old Testament, and we can easily just kind of go over them, right? I mean, their names, not my descendants, what's the big deal? But when we look at, um, when we look at these names, they're within these passages like this are um, and, and talking with somebody this last week, there's these little nuggets, these little nuggets that point us to the reality of God himself, which then helps us to understand ourselves better. And so this passage today is about mighty men, David's mighty men, and how David led these mighty men in mighty battles. See, great leaders— Great leaders like David have great support behind them. This is not something new in history. Alexander the Great, he's a great leader. That's why he's called Alexander the Great. He had his issues. I understand that. But he conquered kingdoms and empires. Dwight Eisenhower defeated Nazi Germany. George Washington won our independence from Britain. There's so many more that we could talk about, right? But none of these men, as great as they were, could have achieved 
such renown if it had not been for those who were behind them, those who fought their battles, those who accomplished the desires of their leader. And so it is with David. Our passage this morning is a list of David's mighty men, names that may be difficult to pronounce. Just do it, do it with, yes, gumption, right? With confidence. They're hard to pronounce, but, and they're easy to forget because we just move right past them. But these men played a vital and powerful role in David's rise to the throne of Israel, and they worked to ensure that he would stay on that throne. Now, there are four types of mighty deeds that these men accomplished, and then from them, which we can learn from. First, these mighty men are victorious even against overwhelming odds. Second, these mighty men are victorious even when they're standing alone. Third, these mighty men put their own lives on the line to satisfy the desires of their king. And lastly, the loyalty and renown of these mighty men are remembered generation after generation. And so David's men, David's men are victorious over the enemy despite overwhelming odds. Now, as Albert just read, verse 8, about Josheb Bathshebeth, I worked on that one for a long time. So let's read a little bit ahead. We're going to read out of order. So if you have your Bible, open it up. He read through verse 12. Um, now we're going to talk about two other mighty men, Abishai and Benaiah. Benaiah, then verses 18 through 23. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the thirty. And he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. There he was renowned most, he was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was valiant, a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff, snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. Now David fought many battles. And in those battles, he fought, these men fought over, uh, against overwhelming odds. Josheb Bathshebeth kills 800 men in one battle. Abishai kills 300. Benaiah strikes down two aerials of Moab, which we have absolutely no idea what in the world those are, but they are mighty because they were written down as mighty acts. He struck down a lion on a, in a pit on a day that it had snowed, which is rare in Israel to have snowfall. And an Egyptian in a one-on-one -on -one fight. And though the odds were stacked against them, they won great victories for David by accomplishing extraordinary feats. Feats mighty enough to be written down for future generations. Now the second mighty deed of David's men is achieving victory despite standing alone. And this is 
what Albert read in verses 9 through 12. The first of these men is Eleazar. In a battle against the Philistines, he stood his ground as the army of Israel retreated, and he fought until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. Now, if you've ever done a repetitive, um, a re- repetitive action for a long period of time, like I'm, I'm thinking of my like, uh, um, sledgehammering something, or if you've got a jackhammer, or you're raking all day long and you're holding on to the pole. Have you ever had that moment when you get done and you try to open your hands and it hurts to open your hands? That's what he's experiencing. He, he's clenching his sword and he's fighting so hard and he's so weary that when the battle is over, he can't let go of his sword because his hand hurts so badly. Now, the second man was Shema. Oftentimes, battles were fought over plots of food because, well, an army has to eat, right? And destroying the opposing army's food source, in this case Israel's, is going to weaken that army. An army with no food is an army that can't stay there very long. Well, when the Philistines attacked a plot of lentils, which is a type of bean, I avoid them like the plague today, but they're still around. The men of Israel, they didn't retreat, they fled. They ran away. Everyone, except for Shimon. He stands his ground, he defends the field, and he strikes down the Philistines. And we're not told how many he killed that day, but it was a significant enough number that he won the battle for them. Now, both of these men bravely and confidently stood their ground while they were standing completely alone. When everyone else fled, whenever, whenever everyone else retreated to regroup, these two men stood firm and they won a great victory. The third mighty deed is achieving victory in order to satisfy the desires of this king. Now, this is one of the, a very famous story of David and his men. So let's read verses 13 through 17. And the three of the, of the chief, no, sorry, the three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now, there's a lot that we can unpack in these verses, but uh, what I want to focus on is actually the purpose behind why these men did what they did. What caused them to put their lives on the line for a cup of water? David longingly speaks out loud his desire to drink his hometown's water. Now, growing up on Sunday, mo- Sunday afternoon, our meal was roast potatoes, carrots, and gravy. My mom made it because it was easy. 
Now, I've had some good roasts over the years, but there's just something about mama's homemade roast. And if you, if you have anything like that in your family and you go home or you, you smell something that's like, for me, a roast, it just brings back all that nostalgic joy, doesn't it? Like, oh, remember? Remember when we ate that? And even to this day, even to this day, if, we, if Katie makes a roast or something's cooking and I smell it, it's just, oh, it brings me back. Now, this is similar to what David's, this is similar to David's longing for Bethlehem's water. Three of his men hear David's words, which he probably just spoke out of a desire to have all, oh, you know, nostalgia and remembering, but just wanting that water from his hometown. They hear his words and they decide to take it upon themselves to satisfy the desires of their king. But when they return with the water, David recognizes their sacrifice and instead of drinking the water, which is what you would expect, right? David pours it out as a drink offering to the Lord. Because of their willingness to put their own lives on the line for their king and in recognition of the danger in which they put themselves for David's sake, the water was only worthy of being offered to the Lord. That's how serious David took it. It was not a knock against these men. It was an honor to have what they did and what they received to be given as a first fruit, in a sense, to the Lord. Now, the final section of this chapter, verses 24 through 39, points us to the final, it's a list of these final mighty men or the the last final deed of these mighty men. They were loyal and they were renowned throughout the nation because their names are written down in this list. They would be remembered generation after generation after generation. Now, we're not going to take time to read through the list this morning. I'm not going to make you suffer through that. But the number of mighty men speaks not only to David's ability to lead, but it speaks to the loyalty of those who followed him. David was a mighty king who led mighty men who did mighty deeds. But as mighty as David was, there is one name on this list which should remind us of his failings. And it's put last for a reason. The very last name on this list is Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, whom David murdered to cover up his sexual immorality. Now, his name is a fitting end to this list because the very next chapter points once again to David's sin, and this time in his desire for a census of the people. David's sin is once again pointed out to us because after reading chapter 23, we can focus too much on David's loyalty and worship of God and his might in leading mighty men. We could raise him as this really high standard. But David's life, both in his obedience and submission to the Lord and in his sinful rebellion against the Lord, is meant to point us to someone else. 
we've said this how many times throughout the book of 2 Samuel. It, it points to someone beyond David. He is the Lord's anointed king of Israel, but there would be a better David, a better anointed king of the Lord who would one day come. And he would be perfect in his obedience and his submission and his love of the Lord. And so after all this talk of David's mighty men and of the mighty deeds of these mighty men, according to this chapter, none of it was done in their power. None of it. The source of their might was not found in their muscles, and it was not found in their military ability. The source of their power and their might is in their God. And I'm not just saying that because, you know, hey, we're a church and we're supposed to worship Jesus. It actually says that. I don't know if you caught that. Did you catch that in the passage? For as mighty as they were, verse 10 and 12 say, the Lord brought about a great victory. And it was the Lord who worked a great victory. And so all their might and all their victories were founded upon the power of God, not the power of them. If we remember that this book was put together for the exiles of Judah, okay, that, that's what this, this book was compiled and put together because Judah has been sent into exile in Babylon. And it was sent to them to be an encouragement to them because they're, they find themselves in the land of their enemy and in the hands of Babylon. They're longing to go back to the promised land. What do they need to do to make that happen? Well, what this passage does is they remind them, it reminds them that they need to trust in their Lord. For when the appointed day comes, God is going to work, God is going to work a mighty victory for those who belong to him. What do we need to do to get back to the promised land, God? What do we need to do? What do we need to do? And he says, you let me take care of that and I'll let you know. And you're going to do it in my power. I'm going to work this out for you. I'm going to give you victory and bring you back home. Not a victory that's founded upon your own military might or your political prowess, but upon the strength of me, your king, the Lord. But until that day comes, the Israelites are called to be faithful and to love, to obey, and to submit to their God. And they can be confident that he's going to work a mighty victory for those who are loyal to him because God promised to do so. And God always keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises. And so it is for us today, for those of us who belong to the king, through the power of Jesus Christ, the word of God in the flesh, the gospel message in the flesh, his mighty men and women can accomplish mighty deeds. But our battle is not against the Philistines. Our battle is against the powers and the rulers and the authorities of this dark world. That's Ephesians chapter 6. It's a spiritual battle for the hearts and the minds of people, not for crops and not for land. It's through the power of the gospel message that victory is found. When we who love Christ, 
when we're overwhelmed and we're outnumbered by the enemy, God strengthens and enables us to fight for him, for his glory and his honor until we are victorious. Now that's the true meaning of Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It has nothing to do with football. I will fight and I will die for my king because I can do anything when he gives me that power for his glory and for his honor. Not through our own power, but through his power. When we find that everyone else has retreated to safety, when everyone has fled out of fear for themselves, and we are standing on a hill completely alone, as his people, we know we are not alone. For it is God who works through us to bring victory. Our strength is not found in ourselves, but in the one who is all-powerful. And when we hear the desires of our king, when we read his word and he reveals to us his wants and his passions, the power to put ourselves in harm's way and satisfy the desires of our king is not found in us, but in him. And when we come to the end of all things, when we stand before the throne of our king, he's going to pull out the book of life and he's going to read our names off of it. Because when, his, when by his grace he saves us from his wrath for our sins, he writes our names in that book. Not in pencil, but in permanent ink. Nothing will remove us from his love and nothing will remove our names from that book for all time. For he writes the names of those who are faithful and loyal to him. And the beauty of all of this, the, the joy and the peace that we find in all of this is that any victory that we have in our lives, that we experience, is founded upon the power of God through Christ in us and through us. For Christ is a better David. Where David needed his mighty men, no mighty men, no King David. Where he needed mighty men, Christ, he doesn't need us. Now what I mean by that is that I have to ask myself the question, or ask yourself this question, what can I give to a king who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and eternal? What do I give to a God who not only has everything, but he created everything by the word of his mouth? What can I give to a holy and perfect God who has everything and owns everything and creates everything? And the answer is nothing. There's nothing I can give that is of worth to him to try to earn his love. Nothing. This is our great God. We do not serve a God who is in need of anything. But he is a God who chooses to use us. He chooses to empower us. He chooses to love us so that in the end, he is given the glory which only he is worthy of receiving. When we speak to our neighbors about Jesus, when we obey our parents, when we love our spouse, 
when we serve and love those around us, when we stand up for the truth, when we speak the truth of the gospel message, that salvation is by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ and not by our own works, when we pick up our Bibles each day as a discipline to learn more about our King, when we fight the same sin in our lives each and every day, when we do these things, we do not do them in our power. We do them in the power of God. And the victory that we experience when we submit ourselves to Christ and we love Him, the victory that we experience is accomplished by God for Christ's sake through us who are loyal to and love the King. So in other words, when you read this passage, if you are a believer, if you're a child of God, if we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are God's mighty men. I mean that general. I'm using the, let's try to use the words of the Scripture. We are God's mighty men. Our job as His mighty men is to be faithful to our King and to trust that He will do mighty works through our weaknesses. And he's going to accomplish mighty deeds through us in ways that will only give himself glory, that will only lift him up, that will only make his name great, and that will only glorify him. That's what happens when, when God's people recognize and see who our God is and who we are in Him. This is our calling as God's people. This is the reality of who we really truly are. In and of ourselves we are weak, but in Christ indeed we are strong. So that people see Him and not us. So people see Him and not Elm Creek. People see Him and see him alone. In other words, David's mighty men took a back seat so that he could be given the glory, still doing mighty things. And as his people, we take a back seat for our king and we say, don't, don't, don't. No, don't look at me. Look at him. Look at, look at what he did. Look at who he is. Anything that is mighty that I have done is because he is mighty. And so glorify him and look to him. Amen. Father, oh God, use us as your people to do mighty deeds, to work in mighty ways. Use us to do extraordinary and unbelievable things. At the same time, Father, remind us that all of it is done by you through a simple servant. By you, through your son, through the gospel message, you have changed us, you have empowered us. It's your power that helps us, Father, to be faithful when we stand alone, faithful to you 
when we are overwhelmed, faithful to you to, do, to give you the desires that you want, to satisfy what you want, Father, and your passions. It is all in you. And so, God, we ask that you would use us as your people to glorify yourself. And I pray that those hearing this, Father, who are not your people, that you would cut them to the heart, that you would open their eyes to your greatness. They would see your mighty deeds and they would lift you up and believe and confess in you and repent of their sin and experience the joy and the peace and the satisfaction that you as king are mighty and worthy of our praise. We ask this in your name. Amen.